Welcome to The Slowdown, part of a new series called Words to Enlighten the Interviews. I'm Kim Nelson, writer and creative meditation teacher from Belgium. And joining me is my co-host from Canada, Marianne de Groff. Hi, guys. She is an essential oil educator and integrative nutrition health coach. This is the second interview to join this series, which links to our podcast, Slowing Down to be Happy, which featured Robert Fulton, a teacher of Sanskrit and yoga philosophy. So it was interesting to talk with Robert because as well as talking about his passion for language of Sanskrit, which is used in yoga, he also talked candidly about the ego in yoga. Mm. Have you experienced this? Have you seen evidence of the ego in yoga? I I don't know if I can say I've specifically seen it in yoga because there's just a few few people that I follow and um, they're quite genuine and they've kind of carried on their practices as authentically as possible during this COVID time but I could relate to what he was saying about people trying to jump on this like bandwagon of trying to make money during this pandemic and so I definitely saw a lot of yoga um, apps and zoom classes and online hosting so I I could I could relate to what he said yes for sure Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny to, to hear him talk about that because mm. um, when I was training to be a yoga teacher, on my very first day of training, we all sat down on our yoga mats. The teacher walked in and she said, right, if anyone's got an ego, you leave it outside the door. And I thought, oh, that's mm. brilliant. She's saying that. I'm so glad she said that because I'd already experienced, you know, a lot of yoga teachers with ego. Mm-hmm. And then after that, she said, only I am allowed to have an ego. Oh. <laughs> okay. Wow. Okay. Completely. And was stunned. she a good teacher? She was a brilliant teacher, but just not a nice person. Yeah, that's it's a shame when that happens. Yes, it is. And that comes down to ego, right? When you know when you let your ego get in the way of what you do. I know, it's such a shame. Um, I'd just like to tell you a few facts, five facts about yoga I just picked out randomly. Mm -hmm. Um, Yoga is over 5,000 years old. In the US, yoga classes were just for men and women were not invited until 1937. Wow. There are over 100 different types of yoga uh, in practice today. Uh, Yoga works every muscle in your body. And the last one is uh, there are over 60 million yoga posts trending on Instagram at any one time. Wow. It's very popular. Very popular. Yes. So on that note, if there's anything else you want to add before we go to the interview, Marianne? Uh, No, I just loved his, his, um, his talk about Sanskrit because I'm I'm a linguist and my background is linguistics and I I loved his um breakdown of you know Om and Namaste and I really like I really love that so I hope our listeners enjoyed that too it will be an education 
So we're just coming out of the lockdown and I guess there's a collective hooray from all the yoga teachers and also their students who've been having to do a home practice for the first time. What advice have you been giving people during this lockdown? What's interesting is what I have told people is like, you know, this is not the time to just go crazy with yoga either. And so if it wasn't in your life, you know, not to make it this huge part because just make sure you can keep it in your life as well. You know what I'm saying? Like if you have all of a sudden this, this big chunk of time, it's the first time you really had a self-practice, just make sure that you can continue that. And that's what I think is really important is how you act and how you integrate things after the doors are open again. Um, You know, we can do a lot when the doors are closed and there's all this time to do different things. But what do you bring with you afterwards? And I think that's pretty important, too. That's a really good mind shift to adopt. And actually, the lockdown has made us shift our thinking, um, especially when it comes to exercise. We've had to exercise from home. Have you got any top tips to maintain that practice? What I think is most important is not to think, okay, now it's time to to do yoga or exercise or whatever. You know, when you look at the watch and say, oh, now I have to do my workout. What's better to do is a little bit at a time so that all of a sudden you go, oh, I really want to right now. Like it it becomes something that you want to do rather than this obligation. Because when it's an obligation, once daily life kicks in again, that's going to be the first thing that goes. Are there any teachers that you would recommend online for people? I'm going to be honest. I, I didn't really do it that, that much myself. Um, and this is going to sound a little strange being a yoga teacher, but there is this level of sometimes the online classes are a bit of an ego trip for. Yeah, I agree. And, it, mm. you know, the first couple of weeks, it was just this inundation, this flood of, Look at me, look at me. I'm doing my yoga practice. Aren't I great? Here, watch my yoga practice. And then it started becoming very commercial. Once people started realizing, okay, hang on, it's going to take a little bit longer. This look at me started turning into, well, pay me online. <laughs> you know, and it became more and more. It became very materialistic very quickly. And so honestly, I spent as little time as possible on social media and otherwise and especially not looking around for, you know, other teachers and stuff. So that doesn't mean that there aren't good ones out there. I just am not aware of them, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Is it still like that with the yoga teachers? Still, like, charging people lots of money to do their class? Some of them, yeah. I mean, some people have really capitalized on this and just made a killing, to be honest. I mean, especially what I saw, and it was kind of sneaky, but I expected this is at the beginning, again, there were a lot of free classes and a lot of this It seemed almost like a charity and just saying, Hey, we're all in this together. Right. And then when you get people hooked, then it sort of turned into this. All right. Now you need to start signing up. And then it, what I also saw, which I thought was a little disturbing is that people were maybe associated with a yoga studio and the yoga studio is trying to stay afloat as well that they would start with the yoga studio, get people into those classes, and then switch to their own on Zoom. Uh, See what I'm saying? And then you could go, yeah. 
I mean, you were basically stealing, you know, customers from the studio that was helping you out. And if you do it yourself, I mean, you could make four or 500 euros in one session. Gosh. And, you know, if you're, if you're doing it with the studio, of course, yeah, I mean, the studio doesn't get more, but it does pay the bill sometimes, you know, when, when you can't do the Zoom. So I found that to be a little disturbing, and I did see that happen several times, that people were sort of taking the audience from the studios, making them their own, and then start charging them. And it's sort of like, ah, I got you. <laughs> now pay me. I've been giving these yoga talks for Antwerp Yoga on the Facebook, and um, one of them was sort of this, just because people do yoga doesn't make you know, it sounds kind of bad, but it doesn't make them better people. It doesn't. It, just because you get on a mat, put on some yoga pants and do some sun salutations doesn't sort of give you this carte blanche to just kind of do whatever you want. And I think mm. that a lot of times yoga people get away with a lot more because of that. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah, that's true. Actually, you're right. I love the fact that you're teaching the ancient language of Sanskrit in your yoga trainings. Are people really engaged in that? Actually, it's, there is definitely an, an audience for that. And I've given workshops in Brussels and in Antwerp and both places. It's really neat to see who shows up. Sometimes it's people that are just interested in the language. And then sometimes it's inter they're interested in yoga. And then sometimes the philosophy. So what happens is you get lots of different angles. And so those are really fun, but you know, people are curious and in a yoga class, they're scared to ask like, okay, well, what does that mean? And so, you know, yoga teachers sometimes can be really bad about being very confident saying the word and it sort of doesn't allow for somebody to come up after class and go, Oh, you know, what does some culpa mean? Because they, they feel like they're supposed to know that. And they don't, oh, okay. you know, so there's not, I think that, that that is a big problem in yoga, that that there's a distance between what is being taught and then what is actually being received. And so what I like to do with the with Sanskrit is to take it out of the, the classroom situation, make it more of a workshop or a seminar and have discussions. And what I've found with that is, yeah, people really are interested in learning more but they're afraid to ask in a class or, mm. and I'm going to be perfectly honest. A lot of times uh, the teacher doesn't know the answer. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, it's, it's very easy to say something with confidence and then that's as far as it goes, you know, that's the end of the story. There's nothing behind it. So I think a lot of times if people were actually asked, Hey, what does that mean? Where does it come from? They might not even know the answer. Some of these yoga poses have such incredibly long Sanskrit names. Could you give an example of one of them? One-legged pigeon, royal pigeon pose. So that's Ekapada Raja Kapatasana. And Eka is one. Pada is foot or leg. Raja is royal or king. Kapata is the pigeon. And then Asana. So Ekapada Raja Kapatasana. <laughs> Wow. That's a lot. <laughs> Basically, but the thing is, and this is when I teach these to students, is you break it down because Sanskrit the, it has little elements and you can make these insanely long, like super long uh, compounds. 
you know, of a hundred letters easily, but you can always break it down into these smaller units. And that's one of the challenges of Sanskrit is breaking it down into these smaller units. Can you tell us a little bit about the sound om? Everyone seems to know that sound, even those who don't even like yoga. Um, and I know that kids especially like the sound of om because of the vibration it makes on their throat. Sure. And, what it and it, basically all of Sanskrit is in that sound. And that's why it's such an amazing sound. Sanskrit is based on where the sounds happen in the body. So exactly what you said, you know, it's very natural for kids because it starts low with the uh. And if you really break down om, it's A-U-M and it's aum. And you start low with the A and then the U starts going up towards the mouth. And the M, the M ends up in the lips and the nose and then it fades out into silence. So at one level, it's a physical warming up of all of the vocal cords. And so it literally is going from the lowest through the throat, through the nasal passage, and then out into the universe. Literally, that's what the is thought of with it. Now, OM is one of those words that literally shows up in every single darshana, which means every single you know strain of philosophy, all the way through the Vedas to present day. And it will show up in Buddhism, it will show up in Vedanta, it will show up in yoga, it will show up in Upanishads, literally across the board. And that's one of the hesitations is because it is a very reverent word, it's a very powerful word, and I don't always use it either in class because sometimes, it, you know, it will just be, okay, now we say Om, but that's not really showing respect for where it comes from. And for some people, it's like it is a very holy spiritual word. And it's not just to be used in a yoga class, right? Mm. So it, it does have some baggage to it. And I think it should be used responsibly. And a lot of times it is just thrown out there. Just lastly, can you tell us a bit about the book you're translating? Well, I'm doing a couple projects right now. One of them is the Yoga Sutras with Patanjali. And the reason... I know there's a lot of translations out of there, uh, out there, but one of the things I'm hoping to bring that's different is there's a lot of academic translations that go very detailed about the the commentaries and it gets very convoluted technical translations, and you can tell that it's done by people that don't have yoga practice, but maybe just be interested in the language and translating the text. And then on the flip side is you might have some people that don't really know the Sanskrit that well, and it's really, really far away from the Sanskrit, and it's very personal interpretation. And so what I'm hoping to do is stay very true to the Sanskrit, but apply it to my own practice and then in the modern-day practice and you know experiences with the teacher training, and also give some commentary about how the Yoga Sutras can be relevant because they are they're very relevant we just had our first teacher training meeting after being away for three months because of the lockdown and one of the things i did i went around the group and we talked about you know how did yoga help you through this and every single one of them had a little different story some of them did physical practice some of them did meditation 
you know, some of them, it was more sort of the, literally the reading the sutras and using it as, as a way of just helping them through the day. And so I do think we can use the, use the sutras for that. Um, just right. quickly, where can people find you? A blog site called uh, Indra's Net, which has a subsection called Sanskrit Street, where I really, I have the online posting of the full Yoga Sutras translation that I've done with commentary. And I'm still editing that, but it's out there for people to comment on, give me feedback, which I would love to have. And that's, so it's Indra's Net, Robert Fulton, Sanskrit Street. Like Sesame Street, but Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Thank you so yeah. much. All right. So, Mariam, what did you think of that interview? Uh, I loved it. I loved, again, back to the language part. I, I love learning um, the intricacies of language and their roots. And I think a big takeaway is leave your ego far, far away from the yoga mat. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> or just yeah. leave it. <laughs> just leave it. Um, yes. I mean, I think what Robert demonstrates is that there are so many layers to yoga and it's not just the physical, which a lot of people seem to think it is. Yeah. Um, but when you open your mind to learning more about the ancient art of yoga, it really does enhance your practice. Yeah. And I definitely uh, would like to say that try to incorporate into your daily life, not just for this time where you have lots of free time. I thought that was really um, a key takeaway as well. Definitely. Um, there's a book I'd recommend. There are loads of yoga books out there, but there's one by uh, Timothy McCall, and he's the author of Yoga as Medicine. Mm -hmm. And he says, change your posture and you change the way you breathe. Change your breathing and you change your nervous system. This is mm. one of the great lessons of yoga. Everything is connected. I love that. Mm. Have a listen to our podcast called Slowing Down to Be Happy, where we talk about the world's happiest countries, happy habits to adopt, happy foods, happy teachers, and a happy meditation to get you in the mood. And also Robert Fulton talks about the most misused word in yoga.